Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave, and I'm the curator and creator of Stand Up Tragedy. Today's episode features the fourth of our performers from our final London live night that we held at the Dog Star in Brixton on the 4th of July. But it's not just that. This episode marks the start of the Stand Up Tragedy Edinburgh season. That's right. On the day that this episode is released, the Stand Up Tragedy team will be travelling from London, Manchester and America to this city of Edinburgh to start our daily dose of tragedy at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which we're doing from the 3rd to the 14th of August at 6.30, downstairs at the Fiddler's Elbow. All year we've worked hard putting on events in London, bringing together an amazing array of artists to perform something tragic, as well as broadcasting podcasts and launching our Indiegogo campaign, which, I'm really pleased to say, got even more than our target, so we beat our target on that. We've received fantastic support, We've had really great audiences and we've got some good reviews and we've had a great time. And now we're going to take all of that stuff and we're going to bring it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as part of PBH's Free Fringe. If you come and see us live, you'll see performers from musicians to comedians to poets to storytellers to magicians to cabaret acts to people giving you science lectures. The main thing about everyone we've booked is they're brilliant and the second thing about everyone we've booked is they're going to do some tragedy and we thought who better to start our daily tragic podcast than Josie Long. Josie Long is in some way someone who needs no introduction, a brilliant stand-up comedian. You might know her from her podcast that she does with Robin Ince called Robin and Josie's Utter Shambles. You might know her from her BBC Radio 4 specials and from the current BBC Radio 4 series Shortcut. And she's been touring her current show, Romance and Adventure, all over the country and in Australia and New Zealand. She amazed stand-up tragedy by really exploring what tragedy means to her, taking the idea of tragedy, seeing how it relates to her life. She performed material written exclusively for the show. But before I say any more, let's have a listen to what Josie Long brought to the stand-up tragedy stage. Oh, thank you so much. Hello, hello. Um, yeah, my name's Josie Long. Uh, I'm a comedian. How's it going? <laughs> um, I, uh, so I haven't done this night before, and I liked the premise of it, and I think it's because a lot of the time comedians like to take themselves too seriously, um, like more seriously than they deserve. Um, and so I was thinking about, the con- like about tragedy and about what that means, and... Um, um, uh, I have thought of something to do, but basically I haven't talked about it before, and it, uh, so it might be rubbish, and I don't know how long it will last. <laughs> but I think it comes in at like six hours. <laughs> so that's all right, and it's fine. Um, uh, I don't totally 100% know where I'm going to start, but I think I'm going to start like this. I think I'm quite a positive person, insofar as I have a natural optimistic temperament that refuses to be stamped out. No matter what shit happens to me, I just, in the end, seem to be like, oh, it'll be all right, won't it? And I think it's quite odd for me to have that temperament in my family because I, uh, 
I lived, uh, how do I explain that without divulging details? I don't want to divulge. Um, my mum was obviously really influential in my life, as people's parents are. And my mum kind of views life as a tragedy, especially her own life. She has a very poetic and tragic idea about herself. Like, she likes 19th century French poetry and she likes drama, I think, quite a lot. And then, um, so like there's things that she would say, like she'll say things like, I always wish that I'd learned the piano. <laughs> and I'd be like, mum, you can, you just get lessons. <laughs> oh, it's too late for me. <laughs> like, it's not, you're alive. Or, <laughs> like she said to me like, um, basically since I was born when she was 31 years old. And I remember from the age of, when she was about 40, her basically behaving like, well, I'm old now, my life is done. <laughs> and my parents broke up when I was 12, and I remember sort of being like, we should get out there and meet someone. And she uh, was like, no, no, it'll never happen for me. <laughs> and then uh, she quite sadly met my stepdad. Um, <laughs> um, but I think my mum has this attitude that tragedy is in itself really noble. And that if you're struggling through something bad, that is kind of bigger and better than if you just try and have a great old time. And um, my sister, there's me, my mum. Oh, and I'm quite similar to this in some ways, insofar as I'm really good at getting on with things despite problems. For example, I moved into my new flat, uh, well, my flat, about 18 months ago, and there was a broken hanger, uh, a broken rail in the wardrobe. And for the first few months, I was like, ah, I'll just put stuff near it. <laughs> and then after three months, I taped it up with some parcel tape instead of just buying a new component. <laughs> and since then, I've been like, it'll do, it does. Uh, let's just keep going. And then um, I, I'm so I'm kind of desperate. I'm very different. Type. I'm very kind of romantic in a sort of soaring, optimistic. This makes me seem better than I am. I'm useless, but like, the idea that I sort of want this big, epic, wonderful life of joys and treasures. And my sister is kind of like exactly neither of those things. My sister had a much harder time of it than me growing up because she kind of fell victim to my parents' bitter divorce and was battered around a lot more and like had, had to support herself from a very young age. And as a result, she's just hard as fuck and she doesn't take any shit from anyone, and she doesn't want anyone fruiting around with any notions of bloody self-narrative or any of that. She just wants you to get on with it and shut up. Like, that's my... And she's, my, and she's lovely and bright, but, like, I was talking to her about love quite recently, and she said to me, thing is, you're going to get shit off of any of them, so you might as well just pick one. <laughs> And I should say, she's getting married and she's really happily engaged. She loves her husband, she's really happy, but her, I think her philosophy is like, ah, fuck it, they're all going to give you grief. And then um, I thought I would tell you about one day where the three of us, me, my mum and my sister, uh, went to visit my grandma. Uh, and it was in 2006. It was in June or July, I can't remember which, but it was definitely June or July. And I know that because that evening I had to do a preview of my Edinburgh show, which was my first ever Edinburgh show that I ever took to the Edinburgh Fringe. And um, uh, a little background. Uh, my uh, mum... My I have one sister with my mum and my dad, and then I have a half-brother 
and I have lots and lots of step siblings. But my mum, my sister, and me, quite often until my mum moved to Tenerife, which leads me to suspect that she's a sex criminal on the run. <laughs> um, uh, they, uh, the three of us, sort of did spend time together, and um, we got a call. My, I should tell you as well about this. My grandma is was fucking brilliant. She's really brusque. She was really like, I don't have time for this nonsense. Let's just get on with our lives. In a kind of, and I should say as well, my whole family is adventures through the class system of the United Kingdom because like. All of us have had completely different educational experiences and life outcomes. <laughs> so uh, the thing about my grandma is that I was close to her, right? And I am not that close to that many members of my family. I love them dearly, but circumstances have dictated certain things and there's not much I can do about that. And I love, I love my family. I love my sister desperately. I love my mum desperately. But I was really close to my grandma. She was there for me when a lot of the time other people couldn't be. And... I know that there is a thing, I realise now, at 31 years old, that there is a thing, that people in their 20s are like, my grandparents were the greatest human beings alive, and you don't realise mine were the most noble, heroic people, and they died, and it changed my life because I had an experience of death where somebody loved me. But you guys can all fuck off, because this is my one, so <laughs> it's different, it's better. <laughs> And also, she was what I had, right? And that's the thing as well. And sometimes that can be very small, you know, and that, that's what I had. And um, me, my sister, and my mum found out uh, my grandma was dying. Uh, she fell over and got injured, and that got infected. Then they kicked her out of a little sheltered accommodation into a home that she hated, and it sucked the life out of her, and she was dying. And I was gutted about this because I didn't have the money or the capacity to have her stay with me and that's all I wanted. And we found out that she was about to die. And uh, the three of us got together and had a road trip to go and visit her to say goodbye. My mum lives in Alpington, well, <laughs> my lives in Tenerife. My mum used to live in Alpington in South East London where I was brought up. I, at the time, lived in Peckham Rye, great place to live. And my sister lives in Maidstone, out of choice. <laughs> and that's how you can see she is different to me. <laughs> and three of us met up, I think, in Orpington to drive down to visit my grandma. And we took two cars because my sister cannot handle being in the car with my mum. <laughs> so my mum, I met my mum in Orpington. She hung out with her and my sister came and picked me up and we took two cars. And me and my sister had a conversation going down that was quite light-hearted. My sister is a lot of fun and she's cool and she's quite light. So we would have had a conversation where I would have said something like, well, the, the fact is, you know, that, that guy is a dickhead. And she would have said to me, oh, and all your relationships have been perfect, have they? And I'd have been like, touche, touche. We were driving down, we were having a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. And we got to the um, car park of this nursing home that my grandma was in and we all got out. And we stopped off in the calf of the nursing home. And I had a carton of orange juice and one of those geo bars. And I know that for certain. And I don't really understand why. My brain's gone, well, this is the significant part of the day. <laughs> I had a thing. And I remember sitting quite for a little while in the calf before we went up to see her because we were sort of chatting. And my mum's lovely, but she's very sensitive. So she kind of thought me and my sister were taking the piss out of her, and we weren't. And my sister was getting frustrated because my sister doesn't have patience for people being sensitive. And I was sort of trying to be helpful, but not really knowing what to do. 
And um, they, we were speaking to one of the nurses on the reception. They said, oh, she's in this room. Just go up. Yeah, she's up there. And we went up in to open the door just so we could see her one last time and talk to her and tell her we loved her and say goodbye. And we opened the door and she was dead. And she died, like, that morning. It's just that nurse hadn't thought to tell us that fact. So we went in and it was the first time I'd seen a dead body. Like, and the weird thing I remember is that her mouth was really open and dark, like, like that. And thinking, like, how bizarre it was that, like, that was her, but she wasn't there anymore, and I could tell that she wasn't there anymore. How shit it was, like, I couldn't say goodbye. And how wrecked I was, because I can sort of count on some of the fingers of one hand how many people I can truly rely on to be adults and all that stuff. And so I was, like, devastated. But the problem was I had a preview that night <laughs> for my stand-up comedy gig in uh, Whitstable in Kent, which is it's a lovely part of Kent, sir. Um, <laughs> so what I had to do was, in the state where I was like, bawling and so full of grief and shit, I had to get on a train from Maidstone to Whitstable and do a gig <laughs> for an hour of new material to people that didn't know who I was or care, <laughs> which, it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life, right? Because, like, you, you're probably thinking that it was a bad gig, right? It was one of the best gigs of my whole life. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And I think it was because, off the stage, you're in the midst of your life. And your life at that time is unbearable. And your life at that time is, like, one of these people who loved me is gone. And that leaves a very scant number of people. And then you get on the stage and you don't have to do your life. You do all the stuff that you're working out and you fuck around with it. And no one knows that that's what's happening to you. You're just fucking around in Playville. And then you get off again and you're like, oh! And it reminded me of times when I've been so ill I couldn't move. And then I get on stage and do the gig in Doctor Theatre. And then you get off again and you're like, oh, good. And I was thinking about that preview when almost an exact year later, I split up with my then boyfriend. And that day, I had to do the first preview of my new Edinburgh show. <laughs> and I was thinking about that gig when, four years to the day, I had just broken up with a massively significant long-term, four years, maybe longer than that, four and a half years to the day, I've massively, I've broken up with a massively significant long-term partner, and I had to do a gig straight away. <laughs> and then, yeah, there's something really, I don't know what it is I'm trying to say about this, but there's something really odd and silly that this is my job when tragic things happen. <laughs> you know, like, and, and also there's something weird about the fact that actually when the worst things have happened to me in my adult life, I've had to gig and they've been fucking belters. <laughs> because the worst gigs that I do are the ones where I'm like, oh, I don't really care, I feel a bit contemptuous, whatever. You know, like that, that kind. And then, um, Yes, I don't know what the ending is that going to be, but I was going to say that, like, I think it's quite easy to frame life as a tragedy, and I think that's so boring and pointless. And I think that, like, everyone has loss, obviously, you know, but there's this song that I was talking to someone about earlier by this Scottish band that my boyfriend likes, 
Uh, not that I don't. That makes it seem like, oh, I'm a girl, I don't love music. I fucking love music, you don't know me. Um, <laughs> it's a band that my boyfriend got me into called Razor, and they, it says, um, the lyrics are, and I said it earlier, but the lyrics are, I'm thinking of a family, the way they keep each other safe, and if the depths of living ever troubles one of them, they help each other understand that life is not relentless loss, and I have tried to understand it thus. And uh, I think that's quite useful, like, you know. Shows that some things are pointful, I guess. Um, I guess that's the end of what I wanted to say. I hope you found it interesting. <laughs> I haven't really written many jokes recently, because why am I fuck jokes? <coughs> <coughs> but yeah, I hope you found that interesting. I'll see you later. <laughs> Stand up tragedy. I'm sure that many of us can relate to what Josie was talking about there. I certainly, when I was listening to it in the audience, found that it chimed with a lot of experiences in my life, my family life and my creative life and all of those sorts of things. And I really liked the way that she took the idea of tragedy very personally. Rather than trying to say any big, broad things, she looked at it in terms of how it relates to her lives. Also, she embodied something that stand-up tragedy really believes in, which is sharing tragedy can be a great way to overcome it. That you can get catharsis through the experience of listening to somebody else's tragedy and through the experience of sharing that tragedy with others. From the reaction of the audience that night, things that they said to me afterwards and the way that they responded during her performance, I'm pretty sure that the audience felt a cathartic experience watching Josie's performance. Josie explained how she chose what to perform to our producer, Bryony Hawkins, before she went on stage. As a comedian, would you describe yourself as generally a positive person then? Yeah, I would. Uh, I really would, actually. As we were talking about this today, actually, I am... I think it is in my temperament to try and be upbeat and I'm very much somebody that looks towards the future and is quite imaginative and I like physical experiences and I like my life so, try and like my life so even when there are times when I feel very depressed or when I feel very bleak, I like to in my head at least believe that those are smaller than the rest of my life. Do any of those tragedies find their way into the work that you do? Yeah, last year I did a show. The show's kind of about how you keep going when you really feel like you're despairing and that things are pointless. And I'm sort of still in a period of my life where I don't really know what the future holds for me in a lot of ways. I suppose no one ever does, but at the moment I'm a little bit like, don't know where my career's going to go, don't know necessarily where I'm going to live and things like that. And at the time when I wrote the show, it was in reaction to I um, had been living with someone who I really loved and then I just sort of changed my mind about it and lost that and left them and I was sort of weird even mentioning it because it's not really but about the shock of that and the freak out of that and and feeling just like I don't understand the world and I don't have any I guess hope or anything to latch on to and then about sort of sheer bloody mindedness of getting through that. How did you translate that into something comedic? I sort of believe that you can talk about anything on stage and make it funny as long as you're willing to undermine what you've said, fuck around with what you've said, say something serious and then immediately say something maybe irrelevant or like juxtapositional. Uh, I think as well what's great about stand-up is it's the full range of earnest talking to falling over and hitting yourself. So if you can have like really serious stuff and then something really slapstick or silly. And then I also think 
sometimes like I know it's a classic film but like sometimes humour really helps you cope and you know you start out with a sad thing and you'll just tweak it at the end to be a joke because that helps you know that's so. one of um, stand-up tragedy's aims is to give people like we call it a cathartic experience a good outlet <laughs> yeah, yeah if you like so that's like sharing would you say it's a cathartic experience for you as well to perform that and share it every time yeah well for me like the last few years I've done shows that have been political at least in part and a lot of that has been how do I deal with this new anger that I've got how do I deal with this new sense of persecution that I've got how do I deal with the fear and the sadness and the freak out of all of this stuff and how that's affected my personal life and stuff and yeah it really does help to have stand-up to talk about it because if you can just try and explain that and hope for the best afterwards uh, or, or explain that and try and say and I'm still here and I'm still wanting to do new things I think that can be helpful for other people in fact today I was at this political workshop thing and this boy came up to me and he was like I want to really say that your shows every year at Edinburgh made me feel much better about not being a conservative at Oxford and really helped me stay on the course that I wanted to have in my life and it made me feel really great because it made me feel like if you can be honest about what you're going through then other people understand it and then you can try and do you get influenced by a lot of your, say, I don't know if you have comedy heroes, but do you find them performing tragedy quite um, a learning experience? Mm. I mean, when I do see comedians talk frankly about loss or about sadness or about anything like that, I'm, I think it is really inspiring. I think it is really good to see people be brave and talk about their lives. I do really love comedy that comes from earnestness and sharing or oversharing or whatever. I do like that a lot. But then I like silliness too and I get most inspired by comedy as a medium because it's so broad and so big. When stand-up tragedy approached you and said, will you do something tragic, what did you first think? Well, the reason I first said I would do it is because I remember a long time ago, Dave gave me a really good swimming tip. Uh, the Isle of Mull, uh, there's a secret beach, and he told me to go to it. And me and my friend James Acaster went to it, and he hated it because he's very skinny and he was like, no, like no support from the sea I however loved it and there were seals in the water and we had a very good time and then um, I remember that and I thought oh he did me that nice thing so he's probably a nice guy and it's probably a good gig so I should do his gig also I really love any sort of writing challenge I do and I like performing things that I get to improv a bit and I like writing things for a specific thing so all of those things applied applied appealed to me for me a lot of my life is spent counteracting certain things maybe from my childhood or around me like with reference to politics like obviously the prevailing narrative politically is very pessimistic and very grey and then also you know just growing up dealing with like people you love dying things you wanted to work out not working out like dealing with all the loss you have to deal with as a person a lot of my life is spent really fighting the idea that life is a tragic thing and that life is somehow nothing but sadness and that's a thing that I want to talk about later hopefully As you can tell Josie has a lot of projects and ideas and to see them all in one place go to her website www.josielong.com She's a regular tweeter so follow her on Twitter too where she's at Josie Long If you enjoyed Stand Up Tragedy with Josie Long please allow me to recommend a few episodes that you might also enjoy Check out our Stand Up Tragedy feeds 
for episodes with Jay Foreman, Matthew Hyten, Andy Bodel, Lucy Ayrton, and Richard Tyrone Jones. That's five other episodes that you might like, but there's so much more tragedy than that. There's music, there's comedy, there's all sorts of things. So really check it all out. There's even more tragic listening pleasure coming your way. We'll be putting out a different performer every day of the Edinburgh Festival. It's going to be a different dose of tragedy. Sometimes it'll be funny, sometimes it'll be serious, but it will always be tragic. And we'll be doing other things like getting people's tragic moments around the festival. We're using the hashtag tragic moments for that. Tweet us words, tweet us audio, tweet us pictures. We want it in any format, tragedy in all formats. Send it over to us at Stand Up For Tragedy. You can also find us on Facebook, We'll be accepting tragic moments on there. So share your Edinburgh tragedy. And if you see us in the streets handing out leaflets, we'll have a microphone with us and you can record a tragic moment that you've had at the festival. And if you can't be physically at the Edinburgh Festival, here's the way you can do it through audio form. Check us out. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud and the Stitcher Smart Radio app. So for us, the Edinburgh Free Fringe is going to be about sharing the tragedy, about taking catharsis and sharing it with audiences. You don't have long to wait because the next episode will be tomorrow. But until then, the tragedy is over. podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins with audio production from Stephen Harvey. Our theme music was written by Sam Wilkinson, who you can find at radiohuan at yahoo.co.uk. And our outro theme was written by the Reactionaries with amazing production and extra writing from George Brufton.